Thank you, worship team. My name is Mitchell Slater, one of the elders here at River Oaks Community Church. I want to welcome you if you are a guest and you're visiting with us. We're so glad to have you. And it is my privilege this morning to bring us the message from God's Word. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. Pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. We just read from Proverbs that a good word makes the heart glad. Pray that you would give us joy as your Holy Spirit shows us the depths of your scripture today. So we thank you that you promise to help us and that your word will always accomplish your purposes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last few decades, there has been an increasing confusion when it comes to the topic of marriage. And over the last few years, it has become sometimes downright absurd. For instance... A woman in New York married a roller coaster. I'm serious. Legally, she married a roller coaster. She says that she has had relationships with other inanimate objects before. But since she's ridden this ride so many times, she decided to finally tie the knot. And they legally gave her a marriage certificate with the roller coaster. A woman in Ireland made headlines when she was legally married to the ghost of a Haitian pirate who had been dead since the 1700s. In Israel, a ceremony was held for the marriage of a woman and her dolphin. And in China, a man decided that he was done being single and decided to marry himself. He was married beside a life-size cardboard cutout of him. Now, that's absurd, right? That, that's laughable. And the proper response is to laugh. But that shows us how the world views marriage. It's viewed as, as nothing more than a joke, nothing more than just, just, you know, whatever we want to make it. But it can be easy for us to sit back and look at these just just bizarre examples and say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these, these crazy people. I have a traditional view of marriage. I have a conservative view of marriage. But, but in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to ask us this, is that all that you have? So, okay, you have a traditional view of marriage. Fantastic. But do you have a theological view of marriage? Okay, so you're conservative when it comes to family values. But are you Christological? Do you have a Christ-centered view of marriage? Because in these three verses that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is going to deliver a cosmically gigantic view of marriage that is absolutely breathtaking. Now, over the last few weeks, 
Bob and Art have given us such practical applications on how we are to live together as husband and wife. But now in this text, we're going to get the foundation that supports those instructions, that supports how we live together in our marriages. So let's turn to the text. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Our text for this morning is going to be verses 31 through 33, but let's start back in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And here's our text for this morning. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be our teacher. Pray that you would encourage our hearts. Pray that you would help us to see the glories and the beauties that are in this text. I pray that you would renew and restore and redeem marriages in this congregation right now. I pray that you would restore and redeem lives and souls who hear this message. So Holy Spirit, come and, and bring life through your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to summarize these three verses in this way. Marriage is a mystery revealed in creation, redemption, and our everyday lives. Marriage is a mystery revealed in creation, redemption, and our everyday lives. I want you to remember how Paul uses the word mystery in Ephesians. It's a truth that was once concealed and now has been revealed. It was hidden and it's been made known. And we're going to see that the glorious gospel has been hidden by God in the institution of marriage. And that that gospel has been revealed in Christ himself. So first, let's go all the way back to the beginning and look how the mystery of marriage is revealed in creation. So to read verse 31 again, where Paul, he quotes Moses' words from Genesis. 
And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, it's very interesting that no matter where you go in the world, you will always find some form of marriage. So you can go to the deepest, most remote tribes in Africa, in Papua New Guinea, and you will always find husbands and wives. There may be cultural differences, but you will find marriage. Now, if marriage is just a, a social construct that we've invented just to, to help our lives, then this makes no sense. Why would it be so widespread? But if marriage was designed by God and given to man, then it makes perfect sense. We instinctually know this. Marriage is, is built into the very fabric of who we are. And that's because we are made in God's image. Now, in verse 31, this is why the Apostle Paul, he quotes this verse from Genesis. He wants to anchor this truth in God's initial creation of the world. So let's flip over to Genesis chapter 2 in our Bibles. We'll look at God's original design for marriage. We'll be looking at the last paragraph there in chapter 2. Starting at verse 18. I won't read it now, but that's the section we'll be talking about. Now, the word Genesis literally means beginnings. And in the first few chapters, we see several beginnings. We see the beginning of the universe. We see the beginning of humanity. And we see the beginning of marriage. Now, back in Genesis 1, we see a God who is overjoyed as he looks out over his newly formed creation. Everywhere he looks, he sees contrasts and compliments, and he says they are good. He says light and darkness are good. The earth and the sky are good. The land and the sea are good. And humanity, both male and female, are good. But when we move into Genesis 2, there's no female. There's only the man, Adam. And this is why we finally hear God say that something is not good. Humans are made in the image of the triune relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for us to live a solitary and lonely existence is fundamentally not good. For Adam, there was no contrast. There was no compliment. He didn't have his other half yet. So God gave him a job to do. He presented all the animals before the man so that he could name them. You could think of Adam as the world's first taxonomist, going through and naming all the animals. And when he's done, or as he's going through that process, he no doubt noticed that all of these animals seem to be coming in pairs. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Dolphin, not the weird dolphin lady from earlier. 
Um, but there was no misses for him. Adam was alone. Now, God's plan was always to make a helper fit for him. But God's plan was also for Adam to feel his need for another, to feel his need for companionship and for his wife. So once he was done, God gave him some anesthesia, performed some minor surgery, and when the man awakes, he sees his bride. And he sings what I believe is the first love song in verse 23. He looks at his wife and he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Finally, he's found someone who's like him. He's found someone who, who, who fits with him, someone whom he can love and who can love him. Now, at this point in the story, Moses has just been telling us what happened. So, so now in verse 24, it's almost like he, he gets up from the couch, he pauses the movie, and he explains what just happened. Right? So he interjects here to let us know, okay, what just happened is a big deal. And that's why in verse 24 he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the biblical definition of marriage. One man and one woman brought together in a lifelong commitment, a lifelong covenant. Now notice this, this came in before the fall, before sin, before there was any such thing as marital strife. Marriage is fundamentally God's good gift to us. Now, I like the way that the old uh, King James puts this verse. It says, The man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And I like that word, cleave. Now, if you happen to be a grammar nerd, you'll be interested to know that the word cleave is actually a contronym which means it's one word that has two opposite meanings. Okay, so it means two opposite things. So I could use the word in this way. The chef used his knife to cleave a piece of meat in two. Okay, so in that point, he, he cleaved, which means he separated. Right? He tore apart, he divided. But we could also say that uh, the child cleaved to his mother's neck. Right. In that case, what he's holding fast. Right? He, he's, he's coming together. He's drawing close. He's uniting. And this is exactly what a marriage is. It's a cleaver. When a man and woman get married, they are at the same time leaving their old family unit and starting a new family unit. They are, in a sense, dividing from their parents and uniting to their spouse. The two become one flesh. Now, if you're not into grammar, maybe you like math. Maybe. And the math of marriage is this. One plus one equals one. One husband plus one wife equals one marriage. A one flesh union. He says they become one. 
And this is one of the most astounding realities when it comes to marriage. It's that two people get joined together as one. And when you, get, when you go to a wedding, you need to realize that, that the pastor who's up front and he's officiating that wedding, he does nothing. He does nothing to bring those two people together. I've had the privilege to officiate one wedding. I was just kind of there. It's God who does that work. When Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 in the Gospels, he adds his little phrase at the end, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God has joined them together. And what is being described here is a covenant. This is, marriage is not a social contract. Marriage is not just a civil union. We are talking about the covenant of holy matrimony. So I want to ask you, is this how you see your marriage? Do you realize that you have entered into a covenant with your spouse? For those of you who are not married, maybe you're considering marriage, do you understand the implications of this, of entering into a covenant with another person? Because the world wants us to think about marriage as if it's merely a contract. A contract that we could think of it as just payment in exchange for services. So both parties, they just need to make sure that they're satisfied with their end of the deal. If the other uh, party fails to live up to their expectations, we can simply cancel the contract and move on. Right? It's pretty much just about my satisfaction. We'll make sure that we're kind of holding up our end of the deal. A covenant, on the other hand, is a promise that relies on the character of the covenant makers. That's why we take vows at our wedding, right? We say things like, for richer and for poorer, for better and for worse, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. When those words are said, those are covenant promises. A marriage is a covenant ceremony. So ask yourself, where has a contract mentality entered into your marriage? For those of you who are married. Think about how you currently live with your spouse. If they fail to meet your needs, do you respond by withholding your care, your communication, your kindness? Do you retaliate when you think that your spouse isn't holding up their side of the bargain? Do you just focus on the disappointments and the letdowns of the other person and let that stop you from treating them the way that God calls you to treat them and live in covenant with them? If this describes you, you need to return again to God's definition of marriage. You have entered into a covenant and you are called to be faithful based on your promises, on your vows, not based on your circumstances, not even based on the behavior of your spouse. And this covenant faithfulness, it ultimately leads to an intimate relationship. Read verse 25, Moses Presses play again, the story goes on. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were together as one. 
They were enjoying the closeness and the affection that flows from their sacred union. But unfortunately, the, the text goes on. Genesis 2 inevitably leads to Genesis 3, and man's creation is followed by man's fall. And since sin has ruined everything, it has also included the good gift of marriage. This is the reason that marriage, even though it is so fundamentally good, it can bring pain into our lives. Because the covenant is so holy, unfaithfulness to that covenant relationship can be bitter and painful. So after they sinned, God pronounced judgment against that first couple. And He told them that their rebellion would cause a rift, not just in the relationship between them and God, but between the husband and his wife. The man would no longer act as the loving head, nor the woman as his helper. But from now on, men would often act as domestic tyrants ruling over their wives, and women as usurpers. Thus, the battle of the sexes had begun. But this was not God's ultimate plan for marriage. This was just the beginning. God had always had a far greater wedding in view, a covenant that could not be broken, an arranged marriage from before the foundations of the world. That takes us back to Ephesians. So let's turn in our Bibles back to Ephesians chapter 5. And in verse 32, Paul explains this quote from Genesis. He says, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, it's been said that all of Shakespeare's plays end in one of two ways. If it's a comedy, it ends with a wedding. And if it's one of his tragedies, then it ends with a funeral. Now, I want you to consider a common worldview that's held by many of our unbelieving friends and neighbors. I want you to think about how they view the end of the story of human history. So it goes something like this. In a couple billion years or so, the sun is going to heat up until it expands and hits a critical point. When this happens, all of the water on earth will boil. All forms of life will perish. Our planet will become completely inhospitable, reduced to a scorched barren rock floating through the vast emptiness of Space. For the atheist, human history is ultimately a tragedy. It ends in a cosmic funeral. But the Christian worldview is the complete opposite. When the Bible pictures the end of human history, we hear phrases like this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. For the Christian, history culminates with a wedding. The biblical drama is a divine comedy. And Paul says that, that this is a profound mystery. Literally, it's a mega mystery that refers to Christ and His church. So if we've seen marriage in creation, now He lifts our eyes to see it in redemption. What happened with Adam in the beginning was actually leading us to Jesus the whole time. The Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding, a wedding that never ends. This is the true marriage, the ultimate marriage. It's the covenant between Christ and His bride, the church. Our marriages will last a few years here on earth. That marriage will last for all eternity in a new heavens and a new earth. And this is not Paul using a metaphor to help us understand the gospel. It is the exact opposite. The gospel marriage is the true reality, and our human marriages are the metaphor. Our marriages are the metaphor. They are a living parable, a reenactment, a small-scale model of the relationship between Jesus and His people. Ray Ortland, um, he has a small book that I would recommend to you called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. And this quote, it's a little bit long, but it is worth it. This is some powerful stuff. He says, Every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, they are reenacting the biblical love story, whether they realize it or not. The Son of God stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning His bride as His very heart with His inmost sincerest love so that He can fit her to be with Him forever. That dramatic super reality is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. Human marriage has always been intended by God to serve as a prophetic whisper of the eternal marriage it is truly profound. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in church, and I never heard that. I grew up with a pretty traditional view of marriage, but I didn't grow up with, with that. So, I want you to think, in your life and in your marriage, where would keeping this perspective this perspective on what marriage really is and what it's really about, where would that affect change in your marriage? If you didn't see it as merely a relationship between you and your husband or you and your wife, but this is reflecting the eternal purposes of God in Christ. This is reflecting the love that Jesus showed to His church on the cross and the respect that the church shows to Christ. If you focused more on that reality than on your own marriage, 
If you focused on, on what Christ has done for his bride more than the faults of your spouse, how would that change? I want you to think about that. And you know, we recognize seniors today, but for those of you who might be in, 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 in high school, you might be younger and you're thinking, why do I need this message, right? I can't even legally get married. <laughs> um, having this kind of foundation is so critical. Whether you think so or not, within 10 years, you'll probably be married. And understanding this truth, this transcendent, glorious gospel truth concerning marriage is the best way to lay a foundation for your future marriage now. This reality is also the reason that we care about the sanctity of marriage. So we don't reject things like homosexuality, polygamy, no-fault divorce, simply because we're a bunch of killjoys. No, we reject those things because they tell the wrong story. A lifelong covenant between one man and one woman is meant to sing the gospel song and any other version is singing out of tune. This is why we do speak out when the Supreme Court starts to act like the supreme being. So we consider the Obergefell decision of 2015 not simply to be a bad ruling, but pure heresy. Marriage is meant to be a sermon, and any distortion or redefinition preaches a false gospel. We care about marriage because we care about this message, the message of Christ. Now, maybe you had a, a poor example of this in your home when you grew up. Maybe you're saying, I didn't see an Ephesians 5 marriage lived out by my parents or other family members or friends. I, I never saw this. Or maybe you did, and you think, I did see good examples. But all of our human marriages, no matter how good they are, how bad they are, they all fall short of this. We have the greatest example and the greatest representation of marriage in the gospel itself, in the work of Christ. So even if you think, well, I never saw this kind of marriage lived out, you can see it in Christ. You can see it as you look to his work in the scriptures. This is why if you're not currently married, this sermon is still for you. Maybe you're single and you struggle with contentment. Maybe you've been gifted with celibacy. Maybe you have experienced a painful divorce, the betrayal of an unfaithful spouse, the death of a beloved spouse. If that's you, I want you to know that through the cross, you have been given a far greater relationship than anyone on earth could ever give you. You are loved more deeply, cherished more affectionately, nourished more tenderly, protected more completely, provided for more lavishly, and accepted more wholeheartedly than any mortal spouse could ever offer you. 
And if you're married, the exact same thing is true for you. Don't look to your spouse to give you the soul satisfaction that is only found in the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Your relationship with your Savior must be primary, and only then will your relationship with your spouse be able to flourish and thrive. But I want to ask you, have you ever thought about how Jesus feels about you? Not just what he's done for you, but how does he feel about you? I have, and it's very easy for me to think that, okay, maybe he, he does accept me, he forgives me, but he probably gets pretty fed up with me. After a while, he, he probably gets, gets tired of me. But as Paul would say, by no means. God forbid. His word tells us exactly how he feels about those who are his. I love the book of Song of Solomon. And in that little book, we see a beautiful picture of human marriage. But according to Ephesians 5, we see an even more beautiful picture of Christ and the church. The two are, are linked. And so right now, I want you to hear these verses from Solomon's song as Jesus speaking directly to your soul. I want you to bask in the love that flows from the Savior's heart to you. Jesus looks at his church and says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. And he calls to us and says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And that draws out our heart. And We can say back to Christ, He brought me to His banqueting house and His banner over me was love. This is the Savior's heart for you, believer. This love, it began in eternity past. Before creation itself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were in a relationship of pure, holy, joyful, unlimited love. The fullness of that love spilled out and overflowed into the creation of the world. And in that same love, God the Father purposed to provide a bride for His Son. He would take rebels from Adam's fallen race and redeem them as a people for Him, the true and better Adam. And Christ, as the Redeemer, committed to paying the bride price for His people. And he didn't go and seek his bride in the palaces of this world. He went to the brothels. Christ found an unfaithful harlot and called her as his own. He cleared all her debts. He forgave all her sin. He paid the price for her. He washed her with the word and he laid down his life for her. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, just as husbands and wives become one flesh, So the Christian has become one spirit with the Lord Jesus himself. 
That's why back in verse 30, Paul says, we're members of His body. We are completely one with Him. 100% united to Christ in an unbreakable, blood-bought covenant. And I think this, this truth, from the moment of Paul's conversion, shaped his whole life. So think back to the moment he was converted. On the road to Damascus, he was knocked off of his horse and he heard the voice of the Lord Jesus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, now, now he had been persecuting Christians. And, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It's just like if someone were to go out and do something to Shannon, I would say, you did that to me. That's how closely Jesus associates with his people. What is true about Jesus is true for his church. It is true for you. All that was ours, our sin, our misery, our death was taken by Christ. And all that is his, his righteousness, his love, his life, his riches were given to us. So we can say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This love, this redeeming, saving love is what ultimately fuels our love as husbands and wives. Right? So it's good to know that we live in a covenant together, but we need the power to be able to do that. It's not enough just to know this. We need to actually find real motivation, find a real source of change so that we can have the power to forgive our spouse, to show them grace, to live with them in an understanding way. But marriage is difficult because it's one sinner marrying another sinner. Only the gospel can give us the fuel and the power to live in the way we are called to live with our spouse. So marriage is revealed to us in creation, in redemption, but now Paul brings it back to our everyday lives, to our marriages. Let's read verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. After all of this glorious truth, Paul makes sure that we come back down to earth by giving us some seemingly simple commands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Again, Ray Ortland, he says this. Listen closely to this. Christian married couples have the privilege of making the mystery of the gospel visible in the world today by living out the dynamic interplay of an Ephesians 5 quality marriage. His love for her with her respect for him will display the eternal romance of Christ in the church, bringing the only lasting hope that exists into a broken-hearted world. Your imperfect marriage, therefore, is worth celebrating. Jesus thought so. How we live together as husband and wife is a reflection of the gospel. And it can bring that redeeming power of the gospel to a lost and broken world. 
world. Now, if you're not married, you get to display the gospel in a different way, right? Jesus said that in heaven will be like angels, neither marrying nor being given in marriage. That's right. Like all of our marriages are momentary. But it's not quite true to say that in heaven there'll be no more marriage. Far from it. There will just be one marriage. The marriage of the Lamb and His bride. So you get to picture that to the world now, that you can be totally satisfied in Christ and in the relationship that you will share with Him for all eternity. But let's think about these specific commands that Paul has given Commands about a husband's love and a wife's respect. So why does he say these things specifically? I think for a few reasons. One is because uh, we're not naturally going to do it. Right? So I think as a husband, I need to, to be encouraged and reminded, you need to love your wife. That's not just the way you feel about her in your heart. That, that's how you treat her sacrificing for her, how you speak to her. We need to be told that. And on the other side of things, wives need to be told to respect their husbands. I would say a lack of love from husbands and a lack of respect from wives is what causes so so much pain and, and heartbreak in marriages. But also we need it. We need it. Wives need the love of their husbands. And husbands need the respect and the honor of their wives. So husbands, I want to talk to you first. And I want you to understand that deep within your wife's heart, there is a desire to know that she is loved. There could even be fears that you might grow cold towards her. Am I safe with him? Will our marriage last? Does he regret our relationship? Does he love me? And husbands, your wives need to know your love. She needs to feel your love. She needs you to show her your love. She needs assurance of your love. You need to be a student of your wife so you can know what she needs and how best to affectionately love her with both word and deed the way Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. And wives, you need to know that deep within the heart of your husband is a desire to be respected. There could be fears of self-doubt. <laughs> Am I the man God wants me to be? Will I fail her? Am I letting her down? Is she ashamed of me? Wives, your husbands need your respect. Peter even said that a wife's respectable conduct can win over a lost husband. That's how powerful the respect of a wife can be. Show your husband with word and deed your admiration and your appreciation for him. Now you might ask, okay, I know I'm supposed to do that, but they're just not very lovable. <laughs> they're just not, not very easy to respect. But notice Paul doesn't doesn't say, husbands love your wives when she's lovable, or wives respect your husbands when he's at his most respectable. He just says, 
Love your wives, respect your husbands. And here's an important truth. That husbands, when you love your wife, your love will make her more and more lovely. The love of a husband causes that wife to grow and to flourish. And wives, when you honor your husbands, they become more honorable. Love and respect within marriage is powerfully potent. So I want you to think through, how how are you loving your wife? How are you respecting your husband? What are ways that you could do this more and more? What are ways that you are failing to love or failing to respect that could be hurting your relationship? Think through that. Talk through those things together. Now, if your marriage is strong and healthy, praise God and let these truths continue to fuel your pursuit for Christ together, your relationship with one another. If your marriage is struggling, might even feel like your marriage is just barely holding together. There is hope because marriage is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about your spouse. And it's not about your circumstances. Marriage is about Christ. And even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Even when we sin, His grace is greater than all of our sin. And Christ is more committed to your marriage than you are. There is solid, eternal hope through Him. doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean it will always be smooth. But there's hope. Hope through Jesus. And if you're not married, I want you to remember that you have been pledged in marriage to the King of the universe. You are truly the Savior's beloved. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, you don't know Him, this is offered to you. Right now, it's offered to you. Jesus is saying, come to me. He has done everything. He has paid the price. He has shed His blood. He has made the way home to God for you. Come to Him. Put your trust in Him. And you can experience this love. So as we close, I want us to turn our eyes one more time to Jesus, our great bridegroom. There's an old hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And in one of the verses, it has this beautiful picture of of the bride as she, in all of her splendor, steps into heaven. And what captivates her is not not the, the crown that she's given. It's not all of the glory of heaven. But it's the face of the bridegroom. It says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray.
Father, these truths are too high and too marvelous for us. Pray that you would just give our souls a little glimpse. God, I pray that, that you would show us the love of Jesus for his people. Assure us in that love. Show us the depths and the heights of that love. And Father, I pray that that, that love would help sustain the love of our marriages. I pray that you would build strong and beautiful marriages in this church. Where there's places of sin and places of conflict and doubt and pain. I pray that you would bring redemption. Christ, you are the great bridegroom. As we thank you that one day we will be with you around your throne singing praises to the Lamb who chose us to be his forever. All the glory, all the glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.